Hello, and welcome to the Christwalk Church Podcast. What's up, 11 o'clock? How's everybody doing today? Man, it has been an awesome... Sleepy, who said sleepy? I gave you extra time to sleep in and get here at 11 instead with the launch of a second service, so you better not be sleepy. Um, so glad that you guys are here today. Um, if you've got your Bible or a smart device, I want to invite you to turn with me or swipe with me to the book of Second Kings. That's going to be in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament um, is that first big section of Scripture that the Bible is divided in. You've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. And Second Kings is about a third of the way in to the Old Testament. And we are going to land in chapter 3 in just a moment. Um, I told you several weeks ago that I felt like the Lord had impressed on me that that we, my, me as the leader of this house, and then um, as as you as the the people of this house, that that we needed to get ready to receive an outpouring. And so um, over the next few weeks, it's not really a series per se, but I just want to share from my heart some things that the Lord has laid on me and been dealing with me personally about. And so I want to talk to you this morning for the next few minutes about digging ditches in the desert, digging ditches in the desert. And so we're going to start in 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to look at the majority of this chapter today. We're going to begin together in verse 1. My Bible reads, Joram, son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in Jehoshaphat's 18th year as king of Judah. And Joram ruled 12 years. He did what the Lord said was wrong, but he was not like his father and mother. He removed the stone pillars his father had made for Baal. But he continued to sin like Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had led Israel to sin. Joram did not stop doing these same sins. Verse 4, Misha, king of Moab, raised sheep. He paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 sheep. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab turned against the king of Israel. So King Joram went out from Samaria and gathered Israel's army. He also sent messengers to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has turned against me, he said. Will you go with me to fight Moab? Jehoshaphat replied, I will go with you. My soldiers and my horses are yours. Verse 8. Jehoshaphat asked, which way should we attack? Joram answered, through the desert of Edom. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And after they had marched seven days, there was no more water for the army or for their animals that were with them. The king of Israel said, this is terrible. The Lord has called us three kings together to hand us over to the Moabites. Now, before we continue further in that passage this morning, there's a little bit of background information that I feel like you need in case it wasn't clear from my reading of the text. Um, Joram is the son of Ahab. Ahab was married to Jezebel, and they ruled Israel, and Ahab and Jezebel were the, the most wicked um, rulers of Israel ever. 
And, um, and, and so what's, what's happened here is Ahab has died, and now Joram has taken the throne of the northern kingdom. This is during a period of time when the nation of Israel is divided. You've got the northern kingdom, and then you have Judah in the south. And so Joram has taken the throne to be the king of the northern kingdom, the king of Israel. And Jehoshaphat is the king of, of the south of Judah. And, um, and so when Ahab was king... There was a contract that was established with the king of Moab, who was a he, he, he was a sheep herder, and he raised sheep, and so he was going to provide the nation of Israel with 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 lambs and with wool, um, in order for them to have the resources that they would need to care for their people. And so Ahab has died, and now Joram has taken place, and so the king of Moab sees this as an opportunity to make his exit and. and to buck the system and to go back on the contract that he had originally established with Israel. And so Joram finds himself in a position where he is now in authority and he's trying to establish his throne. And, and Moab and, and, and the king and its people, they are, they are moving out and they're taking away the much needed resources that, that Israel needs. And so Joram has decided to take matters into his own hands and to go out and fight the king of Moab and to, to put um, to, to put things back into order and get the contract set back into place. But he knows that it's going to be a difficult task. And so he extends the opportunity to Jehoshaphat, who was a king that ruled and, and was very godly um, and followed the ways of the Lord. He extended the opportunity to Jehoshaphat to join him in battle. And so they set out from their, uh, their region to go to Moab to initiate this war with the Moabites, and they've got to go through the desert of Edom. And so they, 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 get, they get in the middle of the desert, and they realize they don't have enough supplies, and they've run out of water, and they can't give their soldiers the water that they need to drink. They can't give their horses and their camels the water they need to drink. And so they're stuck here in the middle of this desert, and they're looking around, and they desperately need something to shake loose because they found themselves in the midst of a great crisis. Anybody ever been in the middle of a crisis before? It could start out as something simple. Maybe you, you, uh, you wake up late because your alarm clock doesn't go off and, and you're scrambling around trying to get ready for work and you get out into the driveway only to find out that the car has a flat tire and then things just continue to go wrong from there, right? And here's what I've discovered about crises. Typically, it's not just one thing that happens like one thing that goes wrong, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of things. And, and, and it, can be, it can be little things, it can be big things, but, but what happens is, is one thing goes wrong and then another and then another and then another and it creates this, this domino effect and things begin to snowball and, and then it's, it's compacted and, and, and placed on top of us and it, and it wears thin on us whenever we face a crisis. And it, it might be just something physical like that flat tire, but, but then that, that messes with us, um, uh, it, it messes with us emotionally. 
it does something to us, like when we're late for work and things aren't going the way that we hoped that it would go, and, and we start having these emotional issues, and then that starts to play out. It starts to spill over in our, our relationships with other people, and so we have these relational issues, and, and what happens is, is one bad thing turns into another bad thing, and, and a, one bad day turns into two bad days, and then one bad week turns into two bad weeks, and then all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the middle of a dry season. And what started out as, as a physical manifestation is now spilled over into an emotional manifestation and it's taken, it's taken root in, in, in our relationships and everything and we discover that, that we have a spiritual problem, a spiritual crisis that is going on. And we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of this dry season and, and it's there that God feels so far away. Anybody ever felt that way before? Anybody ever, ever experienced that before? You're in the middle of a, of a season of life. You're, you're facing adversity, some struggle, a, a certain circumstance, and you just feel like God is nowhere to be found. It's a dry season. In the midst of those dry seasons, people with the best of intentions, they, you know, your friends, those that are around you, they want to come to you and they want to say, like, really encouraging things like this, like, don't worry, it always gets worse before it gets better. And you're like, you're a jerk, bro. Nobody wants to hear, like, that's not encouraging. Like, thanks for nothing. It always gets worse before it gets better. But, but here's, here's what I have discovered. Those people are right. A lot of times it does get, get worse before it gets better. And a lot of times we, when we experience those things, the reason, why, the reason why we're allowed to go through those dry seasons is because God will sometimes bring those to us. He will allow us to experience those dry seasons because it's in the midst of that dry season that, that our, our faith is tested and that we realize that, that he and he alone is the only one that we can put our hope and our trust in. We realize our, we fully come to realize our dependence upon him. So sometimes God is going to allow you to experience a dry season in your life to challenge you and, and to, to, to shake you a little bit, to wake you up so that your heart will be turned back and, and will refocus on him. And so that, that's what's taking place right here. Joram, he, he was not as wicked as his parents, but he still did things that were not in accordance with, with a, a life that honored God. He did not lead the people of Israel in a way that honored God. And so God is allowing this to happen with, with the king of Moab, and he's allowing him to walk through this desert. He's allowing him to experience this dry season so that he can get his attention to turn his heart back to him and to turn the people of Israel back to God. And so for the next few minutes this morning, as we continue through this chapter, if you're taking notes, I want to talk to you about three things that I believe this chapter highlights. That if we do these things, if we focus on these things, if we live with these things in place, it will allow us to experience God in the midst of our dry season. Three things we can do to experience God in the midst of our dry season. Picking up in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 11. But Jehoshaphat asked, Is there a prophet of the Lord here? We can ask the Lord through him. An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He was Elijah's servant. Jehoshaphat said, He speaks the Lord's truth. 
So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to see Elisha. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, I have nothing to do with you. Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. The king of Israel said to Elisha, No, the Lord has called us three kings together to hand us over to the Moabites. And Elisha said, As surely as the Lord all-powerful lives, whom I serve, I tell you the truth. I wouldn't even look at you or notice you if Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were not here. I respect him. Now bring me someone who plays the harp. And while the harp was being played, the Lord gave Elisha power. Now, here's what's taking place. These these three kings, the the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, they have come together with their troops and their their soldiers and their armies and and their, their animals and everything, and they are marching through the desert, and they have discovered that there is no water, and they cannot continue to carry on their journey. They're not going to be able to go and fight against Moab and overtake that, that king and his people and overthrow that army. And so they're in the midst of needing some relief. They need, they need something to shake loose, something to happen, to change their situation. And Jehoshaphat all of a sudden goes, wait a minute. Is there a prophet of the Lord nearby that we could talk to? Surely we could go to God, and and maybe God could do something about our situation, right? And so the first thing that we've got to do, if we're going to experience God in the dry season, if we're going to experience God in the deserts of life, the first thing that we have to do is seek the Lord. We have to first seek the Lord. Why is it that we often fail to seek the Lord in the midst of a crisis? You know what happens? I I don't know about you, But I'm willing to admit it, even as the pastor of a church, I find myself thinking or even saying things like this sometimes when a crisis enters into my life. Well, you know, I've done everything that I know to do. So now the only thing left to do is pray. I've done every, I've, I've, I've gotten this in order and I've talked to this person and I've gotten advice over here. I've done every single thing that I know to do. So now all that's left, I guess, is for me to just pray. Like, what? Why do I do that? Why do we do that? That's crazy. We should have started with prayer. That's where we start. If we're going to experience God in the midst of our dry season, we have to first start by seeking the Lord. That's where we begin. That's not the last result. The last resort, that's where we begin with seeking the Lord. We don't do everything first. We don't don't depend on our own abilities first. No, we go to the Lord. God, here's the situation I'm in. What would you have me to do? Who do I need to talk to? What do I need to get in order? How do I need to operate? First and foremost, we have to seek. The Lord, if we're going to experience God in the midst of a dry season. Verse 16, 2 Kings chapter 3. Then Elisha said, the Lord says to dig holes in the valley. The Lord says you won't see wind or rain, but the valley will be filled with water. Then you, your cattle, and your other animals can drink. This is easy for the Lord to do. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will destroy every strong walled city and every important town. You will cut down every good tree and stop up all springs. 
you will ruin every good field with rocks. So they're in the midst of this crisis. They don't have water. They finally figured out, oh, we didn't do this on the front end. Maybe we should have considered God in the midst of this situation. And so they find the prophet of the Lord and they go to him and they say, hey, can you help us out? Can you talk to God for us and then tell us what God says? And then so the word of the Lord comes through Elisha and Elisha says, hey, I've got great news. God has spoken. And he's going to move in your situation. And so I can imagine that, that the, the kings and the armies, they're getting excited to know that God is getting ready to move. And this is what the Lord says. The Lord says, you need to go get your shovels. Wait, what? Yeah, the Lord says, you need to go get your shovels and start digging ditches. No, Elijah, you, you, Elisha, you must have misunderstood us. We said that we're thirsty and we need water for our troops and for our animals. Elisha says, go get your shovels and start digging. He says, you're, you're not going to see the wind or the rain, but, but it, it, is, it is getting ready to come. And those ditches, they are going to be filled with water from the Lord. So go get your shovels and start digging. You know what, sometimes when we're in the middle of a crisis, we're like waiting around and we're going, oh, okay, God, when are you going to move? Why haven't you shown up yet? God, why haven't you done anything yet? God, God, I told you that this is what was going on. I told you the crisis that I was experiencing. I told you what needed to happen. God, why haven't you moved yet? Could it just be that maybe God hasn't moved in your situation yet because the whole time you've been waiting for him to move, he's been waiting on you to move? The whole time you've been waiting on God to do something, God was waiting on you to pick up a shovel and to do some work, to take action, to respond in faithful obedience unto his word. We've got to dig holes. Whenever we have dry spells, whenever we walk through a, a season of desert, when, whenever we're expecting God to move in our life, we need him to show up. We need to dig some holes to create space for him to be able to move, for him to be able to work. What are you saying, Pastor Blake? Are you saying God can't just do it? Well, of course he can, absolutely. But the majority of the time, there's an expectation on him or, or by him on us for us to do part of the work as well. Sometimes it, it's hard work. Picking up a shovel and, and digging a ditch in the middle of the desert, that's hard. And you're going to get blisters and it's going to be rough. Sometimes God wants you to, to walk down a difficult road so that he can bring forth the blessing in your life. But you first got to be willing to do the work to receive it. When we step out in faithful obedience, God is going to move. Even though we may not be able to see it. In verse 17... Elisha tells the people, he says, when you, when you dig these holes, you dig these ditches, you're not going to see wind, you're not going to see rain, but God is getting ready to move. And when I read that, I, I think a lot about a duck on the water. You know, or maybe a better analogy for here is a goose on the water. Because it seems like that's all we have around here. But I think about these, these aquatic fowl, and 
I'm a learned man. And I can use words like aquatic fowl if I so choose. But we see them around here, and, and on the surface of the water, they're just chilling. They're just, you know. But what we can't see is just below the surface, those little webbed feet are like going like crazy to keep them afloat and keep them on top of the water. And sometimes we get into the midst of situations like this. We, we face adversity. We, we find ourselves in the middle of a dry season, and we're looking around, and we're like, God, where are you at? What are you, what are you doing? Nothing's happening. But we fail to be able to see beneath the surface of all that God is stirring, of all that, that is taking place. And if you and I would just step out in faithful obedience and, and begin to dig some holes and create some space for God to move, then everything that he is stirring up beneath the surface will then come forth, and we will experience it in reality. But we've got to do that even when we don't see it happening, even when our situation looks hopeless, even when we think God might not be able to fix it. Verse 18, Elisha, he, he addressed, he addressed these, these kings with this, and, 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 and they, were, they were in a hopeless and a dire situation. And, and Elisha says, Elisha says that, that this thing that they're asking for, this water in the desert, that it's going to be easy for God. It's going to be easy for him. There's, there's nothing that is too big for God to accomplish. And Elisha says, not only is God going to do the, the, the little thing, the easy thing you've asked him to do, to bring water into the desert for you, but he's also going to deliver Moab into your hand. He's going to give you the victory over that army. See, sometimes we find ourselves in the middle of a, in the middle of a dry season, in the middle of the desert of, of life, and, and we begin to just focus on the small things. We focus on the, the easy things, and God, God is saying through, through Elisha to us today is that, that our faith isn't big enough, that, that God is big enough not just, to, not just to meet today's need, like the need that's right in front of us, but he's big enough to take care of tomorrow's need too. Not only would he give them water, but he was going to give them victory over the army that they were going to, to wage war against. And here's the principle that I believe this passage of Scripture shares for us today, is that God is not just the God of small things. God is the God of all things. And so regardless of what your situation may look like, regardless of how big it may be to you, you need to surrender it unto him and, and, and move and, and get, get ready, get your shovel ready and start digging holes because God is going to move in the midst of your situation. You may not see it. You may not know where it's coming from. But when you step out in faithful obedience, God is going to show up there and he's going to meet you in the middle of that desert and he is going to move on your behalf because there is nothing too big that he cannot handle. He's not just the God of small things. He's the God over all things. Verse 20, and I love this part right here. Verse 20, the next morning, about the time the sacrifice was offered, water came from the direction of Edom and filled the valley. The next morning, about the time the sacrifice was offered, water came from the direction of Edom and filled the valley. To experience God in the middle of a dry season, in the middle of a desert, we first have to seek the Lord. We have to submit to his word. And then third and finally, we have to offer up sacrificial worship. Verse 20 talks about the, the people coming together and, and they, they offered up a sacrifice in the morning. This was 
This was actually a grain offering, and the Israelites would have offered this on a, on a daily basis. And, and it was an acknowledgement of God's provision in their life. It wasn't, it wasn't a blood sacrifice where they would kill a, a bull or a lamb or anything like that for the, for the forgiveness of sin. This was an offering that, that went up to God that, that was offered for his provision in their life. And there were some stipulations that went along with this particular offering. Number one, there, um, it had to be pure. This grain offering had to go forth unto God and it had to be pure. That means that there could be no leaven or no yeast or no honey added to it. And our sacrificial worship unto God, it's got to be pure. We can't come to God with an agenda or with ulterior motives to try to get our way, to try to get him to move the way we want him to. No, we come to God in, in, in purity and, and humility, and we offer up a sacrificial offering of worship unto him because of what he is doing, even that we cannot see for everything that he has done already and for everything that he's going to continue to do. And it's all about him, it's not about us. And so that offering that they were to bring, it was supposed to be pure. The second thing is, is that it had oil and frankincense added to it. Oil and frankincense, they, they represented joy and celebration. When we come to God and we offer him our sacrificial worship, we don't, we don't do it out of obligation or we don't do it out of disgruntlement. We don't do it because someone's making us. We don't come to God and, and, and offer, offer sacrificial worship unto him and it's not with, with gritted teeth and, and, and tightened palms. And I can't believe this. Here you go, God. Thank you. No. It's with joy and celebration for what he is doing in our life. You remember the three wise men, they came to the baby Jesus and they brought frankincense. It was this symbol of joy and celebration because this baby, the, the king, had come into the world. And so they were celebrating all that he was going to do, everything that he was going to accomplish. And so when we come to God and we offer him our sacrificial worship, it is to be done with joy and celebration in, in expectation and anticipation of what he is about to do in our life. And then finally, along with the oil and the frankincense, there would have been a little salt added to it. And the salt is a preservative preservation agent and it was to remind the people that that it was it was God's provision that preserved them but also that this offering this worship unto God is 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 not just for today it is a continual it is an ongoing act of worship that we are thanking God for his provision not not in the things that he's already provided not in the things that he is currently providing but in the things that he is going to continue to provide that it is ongoing and that is our sacrificial worship unto God it's pure and it is out of the joy and celebration, out of the overflow of our hearts. And it is with a mind, tune in to not just what he's already done, but what he's going to continue to do in our life, in our situation. And it's important to note this. The water didn't come until the offering was made. The water didn't come until the offering was made. You and I, we are to celebrate. We are to go forth in sacrificial praise and worship and, and to celebrate what God has done even before we've seen it happen. The 
prophet said, you're not going to see wind. You're not going to see rain. It's not, you're not going to tell where it's, where it's coming from. And so they walked out that morning, and they offered their grain offering, and there was just a bunch of empty ditches laying around. But whenever the offering went forth, and they put forth the praise for what God was going to do, that is when the water came and filled the holes. We celebrate what God has done even before we see it happen. That means in your marriage, you might say, God, I know he said he wanted out, but I'm praising you for restoration and reconciliation. In your family, you might say, Lord, I know that my children aren't living for you, but today I'm praising you that they are going to be saved. In your job, you might say, I know, God, that it, it seems that I'm the least qualified for the promotion, but today I'm praising you for your favor. In your health, Lord, I know what the doctor's report said, but today I'm praising you because I am healed. In your finances, Lord, I know what the numbers say. And I've looked at it every way that I possibly can, but, but today I'm praising you because you are my supply. That even when you can't see it, even when it doesn't look like it's possible, we step forth and with sacrificial praise and worship, we honor God for what he is going to do because he is able. He is able, and it is through our praise and our preparation that his provision can come forth. God's provision will always follow our preparation and our praise. But we got to dig the holes, and then we got to offer the sacrifice. Here's how the story ends. Verse 21. All the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them. And so they gathered everyone old enough to put on armor and waited at the border. But when the Moabites got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. They saw the water across from them, and it, it looked as red as blood. And then they said, this is blood. The kings must have fought and killed each other. Come, Moabites, let's take the valuables from the dead bodies. And when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites came out and fought them until they ran away. Then the Israelites went on into the land, killing the Moabites. They tore down the cities and threw rocks all over every good field. They stopped up all the springs, and they cut down all the good trees. And Kir Hareseth was the only city with its stones still in place. But the men with slingshots surrounded it and conquered it too. Now, it's important to note that, that this desert was in the Valley of Edom, and Edom means red. It's, it's a throwback to Esau, who was the brother of Jacob. And many of you may remember that Esau, he was covered in a thick red hair, or it also could be attributed to the bowl of soup, the lentil soup that was red, the red stew that he traded his birthright to Jacob for. But but um, it was named Edom because it was this red sand. It was, it was a, a desert full of red sand. And, and when the water came into the valley that day and it mixed in those trenches with that red sand, the Moabites got up and they looked out over the hillside and they said, that looks like blood in the valley. And that's gross. But they got all excited about it. They were like, oh, look, come here and look. There's blood and the Israelites have already been defeated. Let's go down and let's take hold of the spoils of war. And they were so excited to get down into that bloody valley only to find that Israel had not been defeated. But it was through the provision of the Lord that, that the enemies 
outlook was changed and Israel garnered the victory that day in accordance with the word of the Lord that had gone forth. Now watch this. Some 2,000 years ago, there was an enemy who stood up and he looked over and he saw blood running down, a lifeless body hanging on a cross. And he thought that he was victorious. And for three days, he celebrated and relished in the spoils of war. But there was a hole that had been dug. For the greatest move of God, in preparation for the greatest move of God that would ever take place, And all day Friday and all day Saturday, the people of God wandered around and they looked up to to the heavens and they thought, God, are you not going to move on our behalf? Are you not going to do anything? Until Sunday came. And the stone that was placed over the opening of that hole started to shake. And it rolled away. And Jesus stepped forth into the light of glory. And the enemy was defeated once and for all. And you and I were given victory over sin and hell and death. And so I came here to tell somebody today that whatever it is you're facing, whatever situation you are going through, whatever crisis has come your way today, you may find yourself right in the middle of a a dry season this morning. You may be crippled by fear. You may be overwhelmed by doubt. You may be struggling underneath the weight of an incredibly heavy burden, trying to figure out where on earth your supply is going to come from to make up for your lack. If that's you here today, hear the word of the Lord. Grab a shovel and start digging. Because God is getting ready to move on your behalf. And after you've dug that trench and you've prepared the way for God to move, you just sit back and you praise him. You praise him for what he is about to do, for how he is about to move. Because he is not just the God over small things. He is the God over all things. And when you and I put our mind to preparing the way and to praising the way forth, God shows up and moves with his mighty and miraculous provision in our lives. That is what he's about to do. It's hard work. It's not always fun. Certainly not always easy. But if you and I will come to the place where we're willing to say, God, I'm going to step out in faithful obedience. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to dig holes create space in my life and in the situations that I'm facing so that you can move on my behalf. And then after I've done that, I'm just going to praise you. I'm going to praise you because up to this point you've helped me. I'm going to praise you for all the things that you have done. And I'm going to praise you for the things that you're doing that I don't even see. I look around, I don't see any wind, I don't see any rain. God is moving on our behalf. Church, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. 
If you find yourself in the middle of that desert today, grab a shovel, dig a hole, and then praise the Lord with everything you've got. And sit back and watch how he's going to move in your situation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your house today. Lord, I thank you that the situations and circumstances of life, you're not blind to. Lord, but that you see us. You see the very point of our need. Lord, you know every ounce of struggle that we are experiencing. God, I pray that for those that are walking through a dry season, Lord, that you would give them the ability, give them the strength to grab a shovel and start digging. Lord, after they do that, Lord, give them, give them the ability, Lord, to just lift their hands in praise and worship unto you for everything, not only that you have done, but everything that you're going to do in their situation on their behalf. Lord, we give you the glory and the honor and the power and the praise. Lord, we thank you for how you're moving among this church, among these people, and all over this city and county. God, we just pray that you would help us to prepare the way for the outpouring that you're going to bring into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you for joining us today. At Christ Walk Church, we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. For more information about Christ Walk, please visit us at thechristwalk.com.